And so the church, which was obsessed in any case in Ireland with issues of sexuality, as we know, to a horrible extent, we know that today, they focused on Joyce being some kind of a perverted lunatic, an obscene writer, a writer of dirty books. Well, anyone who reads Ulysses looking for the dirty bits is going to come away very disappointed. That was Professor John McCourt speaking to us from Trieste, Italy, the first city of James Joyce's self-imposed exile. And I'm Martin Nutty. And I'm John Lee. Welcome to our Bloomsday episode of Irish Stew. Today's episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by Oum Art, where you can find original prints, jewelry, home decor, and custom gifts featuring Oum, the first written form of the Irish language. Visit oumart.com, and that's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com, and listeners can save 20% at oumart.com using coupon code IRISHSTEW. That's O-G-H-A-M-A-R-T.com. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Martin Nutty on the Irish Stew podcast, and welcome back to season four. I'm joined here by the mellifluous John Lee. John, how are you, man? Eh, Buongiorno, Martin. Non vedo l'ora del nostro primo episodio dall'Italia. Lo sai, Martin, che quando non faccio finta di essere irlandese, fingo di essere italiano. What? Quindi, uh, what, 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 what the frick is going on here? Quindi, mettiamo insieme i due e parliamo con il professor McCourt, esperto di James Joyce e direttore di Department, del Dipartimento di Studi Umanisti, Umanistici all'Università di Macerata nel centro Italia. Benvenuto allo stufato irlandese, <laughs> Dr. McCourt. Grazie mille. <laughs> and that's about as far as it goes. Okay, that's great. I'm a little perplexed at this point. <laughs> I, I did get the uh, University of Macerata. Well, there's also Stufato Irlandese, which is Irish too. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. So. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll give it back to you, Martin. So it's, we speak uh, we speak uh, English here. Martin speaks uh, Irish, and I wanted to throw in a little Italian. Thanks to my, the translation from my wife. So, uh, yeah, I'm, since our listeners are now, many of them may be quite perplexed, I'm delighted to say we have our first guest on the show from Italy, a long-term resident, uh, over 30 years. Um, I'm delighted to have John McCourt on. Um, for those that speak Italian, you've probably detected that John is the head of the Department of Humanities in the University of Macharata. Um, he's the author of numerous articles and books on James Joyce, including uh, Joyce, A Passionate Exile, The Years of Bloom, James Joyce in Trieste, and now most recently, Consuming Joyce, published by Bloomsbury. I could keep going on with a very long string of accomplishments that John has as both an author and an academic. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to simply welcome John McCourt. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, and it's a real honor to be the first guest from Italy. I hadn't realized that. Thank you. And mille grazie. Um, So I'm going to uh, kick this off um, a little bit differently than we normally do. I'm going to give you a, a hypothetical, John. 
James Joyce has come back to life and will be in town tomorrow night. <laughs> he wants to have dinner. How do you prepare and what do you hope to learn? That's a good question. It depends where you're going to bring him to dinner, um, which That's town to he's you. going to land in. Mm -hmm. um, if he was returning to Dublin for dinner, he, of course, he wouldn't have been there since 1912. Um, his last visit when he was 30 years of age and he never went back and um, never went back, but never left, of course, psychologically continued to think almost exclusively about Ireland and things Irish. I think I would buy some good white wine, for sure. And I think everything else would fall into place if the white wine was good. I think I would make him the guest of honor because he would expect that. And um, I think I might ask him, had he lived beyond his 59 years, what would he have written next? Where do you go after the book of the dark that is Finnegan's Wake? Would he have returned to something simpler? And, um, and then maybe... I'd have asked, I'd ask him his view of Ireland today and um, how changed it is from the country he felt he had to leave. And then in order to focus on it from a distance in his fiction. John, what if he came across a comment you had made as we bring him back to life here, where you said, I've been working with Joyce for over 10 years and I've grown to like the man less and less while I've grown to admire the writer more and more. Would he, would he, be, he be fine with that? <laughs> uh, would he be fine with that? Well, I'm not so sure that he would. I'm not so sure that it matters. Um, I don't, I, I'm, I said that many years ago, maybe 20 years ago at this point, and uh, now 30 years of working on Joyce later, I would stand over it. Um, Joyce was an extremely flawed human being who put most of his genius into his writing, most of his humanity into his writing. And I think his family paid a huge price for the way he lived. In other words, his every waking hour was at the service of being the writer that he became. And his two children, Giorgio and Lucia, certainly came, came a distant second until it was too late. And he desperately tried to save them, you know, to save uh, Lucia in particular from mental illness. Um, and his last years are very sad with his own eyesight fading, with, with World War II in, about to happen, and with Lucia increasingly in distress and psychological distress. So, I mean, I think um, he learned a lot as he lived, as we all should try to do. As he said, our, error, our errors are volitional. They're, they can be portals of discovery. And um, I mean, Joyce's journey was a, a journey of constant discovery. And um, I think maybe trying to learn from, from mistakes made. Um, so I, I think he would be challenged by that assertion, but I, I would believe that it's true and not that unusual among great writers. I mean, Dante famously wasn't the nicest person in the room either, but um, who's going to argue with the writing 700 years later? So what do you think of, just picking up on the thread on Dante, do you think of Joyce as being the Irish equivalent of Dante, or is it just too early to say yet? Well, it's very early to say, isn't it? So Joyce is, Ulysses is 100 years old this year, and we're, we're celebrating that fact around the world. And there's no question that Joyce is a unique figure in, in Irish literature, in that he has a resonance that carries all over the world. It's a name that's almost instantly recognizable. It, it may be that many people haven't read Ulysses, but they've certainly heard of it, and they've certainly heard of Joyce. And I would argue that the same is true of, of Dante. 
I mean, you know, most people know who Dante was, but wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to read him, of course. That doesn't mean they don't understand in some sense the, the cultural importance of what he produced. Um, both were exiles who commented on, you know, their, their, their homeland from a distance. Um, it's too early to say. We'll see where Joyce is 100 years from now. If I was to put money on it, I would say we'll still be talking about him 100 or 200 years from now and that he's certainly on the way to becoming Ireland's Dante. He hasn't dated in the way some other figures in Irish literature have. Um, he seems as fresh today, to me at least, as he, as he, as I imagine he, he was when he was so challenging to Irish readers and not only when Ulysses came out in 19, in 1922. Uh, and that's quite an achievement. We're going to return, obviously, to the major topic of this, you know, Joyce and Ulysses, but I kind of want to roll the clock back because on the stew, we're very, we really enjoy hearing some origin stories. And um, I know that uh, you have a good Ulster name. Uh, <laughs> it's a name that uh, is well known in literary circles in New York City, specifically brothers Frank, who is no longer with us, Frank McCourt, and Malachi McCourt, who is, I believe, now in his 90s. Um, any relation, uh, any connection there? Uh, no. <laughs> My father claimed that we were related to Seamus Dal McCortha, the Irish poet. Mm-hmm. But I think that was based on pure hearsay. I don't think there was anything much in that. Um, no, the, 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 the McCourts of Limerick were a different branch, I think, of the family. Although they did reach out to me about 20 years ago and um, did claim that there was a relationship. I met, I met Malachi in particular. Um, and I remember writing... A very early review. One of the first things I wrote was uh, was about Angela's ashes, which I disliked intensely. Um, <laughs> and I remember my mother reading it and saying, "Do you really want to publish that? Um, it's very critical." And I said, "Well, yeah, I think Frank McCourt. Um, that kind of book has been already superseded. Um, the, the misery of the Irish growing up in in Limerick or wherever else. I'm not denying that that reality was there, but people like Flann O'Brien had." made a lot of fun of that kind of novel. Um, Mally, uh, Martin, you and I, who studied Peg Sayers in school um, till we were blue in the face, reading about misery, um, probably um, so to see the, the misery as portrayed by Frank McCourt, it probably were slightly exasperated by it. So I'm afraid no relation, no direct relationship. Um, I shared a stage with Malachi McCourt in New York where we talked about Joyce. He sang a song, I talked about Joyce, uh-huh. and that was fun. <laughs> Malachi always ends with a song. Why don't we just jump in and, uh, John, yeah. uh, t- t- you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you grew up, a life in Dublin when you were there, what, you know, what drove you to academia? Were you considering being a rock guitarist instead? You know, what, what, what was your career path that led you to now we're speaking to you in Trieste? Okay, so I grew up in North County, Dublin in a place called St. Margaret's, which is somewhere between Fingless and the airport on a small farm. Um, unusually, it was unusual to live on a farm and be that close to the center of town. We were, we were five miles from the Five Lamps um, or five miles from Nelson's Pillar, which was blown up the year after I was born. Um, so I, I was educated initially by the nuns in North Great Georgia Street and then in Belvedere, which was just up the top of the street uh, for 10 years. And um, one of five kids. Um, and 
very interested, I think, for, f- from early on in, in education and in being an educator. Um, in fact, my first wrong turn as soon as I got out of school was to join the Jesuits. And um, that lasted four months um, in the novitiate over in Dollymount, over in Clontarf, and um, realized that wasn't for me. It was a good experience. I, I'm no, not sorry I did it. Um, but I think it was pointing already in the direction. It, it wasn't so much the religious life I was interested in as in a kind of a life that had some meaning, which I felt the Jesuits certainly had. And I really admired them as educators. And um, that led me then to spend uh, the, the next period, a brief, well, six six months maybe in the States, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, working on building sites in Boston. Um, and... My parents were very keen. My father wanted me to be an accountant, and there was no one less suited to that life than me. Um, I enrolled in marketing and pulled out a couple of weeks before the course was to begin and enrolled then in English literature in a BA degree in Dublin, much to my father's uh, great worry, I suppose, uh, as to what kind of a career it would bring. So I was never a great career planner. It was all fumbling my way along, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And after my degree, I got an MA from UCD in Anglo-Irish literature. Um, then I met someone from Italy, uh, from Trieste, and that's why I ended up going there. And there, I think I could serve, safely say I discovered James Joyce. Having encountered him occasionally in Ireland, um, I found myself in the city that it was his had been his home for 10 years, and um, I settled there. And part of the way of settling there was to learn Italian and to read about the history of the city and then to work on Joyce's time in that city. So that's over 30 years ago. I've now spent more time out of Ireland than I have in Ireland, which, which is a strange milestone to pass. Um, um, and I realized that, you know, in a sense, I belong here, although I'm always looking backwards towards Ireland as well. And I'm very much the person that Ireland formed is very much the person who now lives in Italy today. You mentioned the fact that you felt like you discovered Joyce in Trieste and also alluded to the fact that you encountered him. What's your earliest memory of an encounter with Joyce? How far back? When did he hit the radar? Joyce hit the radar for me in 1982 when I was in fourth year in school. And our one of our religion teachers, Bruce Bradley, a Jesuit, told us we were going to read a portrait of the artist as a young man in religion class. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we were going to read Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain. And we were going to look at these two characters, Stephen Dedalus and Thomas Merton, going in opposite directions, but crossing the same kind of territory in search of faith or meaning in their lives. And so that was a very revelatory course for me and a very unusual one that I think 10 years earlier in Belvedere wouldn't have been permitted. But that priest, Bruce Bradley, who went on to become headmaster there and indeed in Clongos, he he opened up Joyce for us and indeed he made him respectable, if you like, in, the, in that world by, by publishing a book called James Joyce's School Days. So I think that was my probably my first um, encounter with Joyce that I can actually remember. I can remember his book being launched in the school, and I can remember older Jesuits grumbling and giving out about such a thing happening because they considered him still the older guard, a corner boy, a gurrier, and someone who had kind of fouled the nest. And um, they didn't want to hear him talked about in their school. Whereas the younger generation of Jesuits at the time were far more open to a figure like like James Joyce and saw the relevance of someone like Joyce for a 17-year-old as I was at the time. And, and in Portrait of the Interesting that you, you know, you went down the Jesuit route for a while because 
in Portrait of the Artist, uh, Daedalus seems to be heading in the same direction at one phase. Absolutely. I didn't go and visit the prostitutes around the corner from the school, though. Um, so the, the, um, the, I had a very different experience of figuring out what I, what I wanted or didn't want to do. But um, certainly, um, yeah, that whole experience was, was, was very much present in my, in my mind, um, the, the Daedalus experience. And, um, and then I suppose, you know, um, although I was never consciously following in anyone's footsteps and I ended up in Trieste entirely by accident, However, as you look back, you see the choice, and it, it was a choice, I suppose, however consciously made, of exile, of, of leaving the country and feeling the need to do that. Um, you know, there was a, uh, a model there in, in Joyce himself who, who could not have become himself had he stayed in Ireland. There's no question about that as far as I'm concerned. He blossomed by being, by being away. And I think he would have been, like many an Irish writer, swallowed up by the country itself and by by drink and by lack of possibility, had he stayed in that Ireland, particularly in the Ireland that took shape in the early years uh, following independence. Uh, the Ireland I left was, of course, in the 80s, late 80s. Um, it was, we, our generation was brought up to leave. Um, we were supposedly the young Europeans, although most of us went to Britain or to the States. Uh, most of my colleagues and friends from school left. Many of them have since gone back now. But it was an entirely normal choice to make, and there was 20% unemployment among, among people in my generation. So it would have been very tough to stay in Ireland. Things have changed utterly, as Yates would have said. Uh, who, who, who saw what was coming? Uh, who saw Ireland becoming a net importer of, of, of people, of immigrants, uh, you know, having been for centuries uh, facing the other way, a net exporter of its people? Yeah, there's been extraordinary changes in our lifetime. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's interesting, I, I would say, um, Joyce immigrated, you immigrated. Is the Ireland that Joyce created in his works changed, modified completely, or I wouldn't say completely, but certainly modified by the fact that he, you know, becomes uh, an immigrant to Trieste. How exactly does that impact? Could he have written that book from Dublin? Yeah, I mean, clearly Ireland has changed dramatically since, since 1904 when Joyce left, or since 1922 when he provided that, you know, 720-page photograph of what he imagined Ireland was like. Um, I think Joyce in Ulysses prevents, presents a kind of a vision of an Ireland. It's both very realistic in describing certain things in Dublin. For example, in the Cyclops episode, the description of pub culture in Ireland is hilariously brilliant and devastating at the same time. However, his Dublin is remarkably, for its time, um, international. Oh, the mere fact of having Leopold Bloom, whose family hail from Hungary and are Jewish, and of having a, a mayor like Nanetti, and of having the butcher called Dlugatz, and, and underlining all of these foreign influences in the city and these foreign presences in the city, it's almost as if Joyce was suggesting what, what Ireland might become, although that's, this was not a message that would be well received by people like the citizen and, and inward-looking nationalists in Ireland at the time. In order to create that vision, I think Joyce had to live in Trieste, which was truly an international melting pot of people. 
it was a great port em- emporium for, for a whole empire. And he lived there, you know, among in a city where the Catholic Church was just one among many churches. There were many languages spoken on the streets. There were people who'd come from Hungary, from, from Austria, from further into Eastern Europe. Uh, there was an English community, a French community. So it was a very multicultural place. And I, I think he found it a place where he could live and express himself in a, in a way that was very free compared to what he might have been able to do in Dublin. And I see kind of Trieste as, as a, a second city hiding in the shadows in Ulysses, which I've called on occasion a tale of two cities, because there's no question that Joyce started writing Ulysses when he was young. He got to Trieste when he was just 22, and he was young enough to absorb what that city could offer him and um, to to then transfer that, to find some way of putting that into, into his fiction. Saying all of that, of course, doesn't take away from the fact that Ulysses is a book profoundly about Dublin. But to me, it's a book about Dublin's limits, but it doesn't limit itself to Dublin's limits in a way that Dubliners did, where it's all about paralysis and frustration and dead ends and, you know, going around in a circle. In Ulysses, that's all there too, but there seems to be much more a sense of possibilities into the future. It's a, it's a bit vague, I realize what I'm saying, but it is a book that opens up and celebrates in a way that Dubliners does not. You know, I'm, I'm in no way any type of Joycean scholar, so I'm kind of quickly picking up some things here and there. And my, my understanding is that the kind of earlier perception was that Trieste really didn't have much of an impact on, on the writing. And that you you hold that it w- was a very uh, inspirational or central aspect in, in him developing his writing. The as you mentioned, very international city, mix of languages. Can you talk a little bit about that. How Trieste may have what's your you know your your stance on how Trieste may have informed his writing. Well, the received wisdom uh, before I kind of got involved was that Trieste's role was very secondary. It was a place where Joyce struggled as an English language teacher living on very little money with two small children, drinking too much, um, and just about survived and was very frustrated because he couldn't get his works published. And all of that's true. Um, however, you've got to live in Trieste to understand the city. It's like most places. Um, and previous biographers of Joyce, like Richard Ellman, a great biographer, he, he spent a month to six weeks in total in Trieste. And that's not really enough to get to get into the the bowels of the city and kind of and kind of understand it. And the Trieste that he visited was a city um, suffering in the 1950s, just after World War II. And the Iron Curtain was five miles from Trieste. You know, Yugoslavia began, you know, about a mile from where I lived. Um, and that was a serious border. And there was a serious sense of closure. And Trieste felt kind of trapped. Okay. Um, whereas the Trieste that Joyce lived was a city that opened up towards the world. It was a great shipping on a great shipping route. It had great uh, railway connections and it had this constant movement of people coming through all the time. And Joyce, um, Joyce famously said that he had no imagination, which is kind of unusual for a writer of his stature to say that. But, um, he didn't have an imagination in the sense that, you know, he, he invented great plots of the Harry Potter mode. Um, he put his imagination into other things, into language, but he kind of picked up what he needed as he went. He, he says this somewhere, I am like a blind man and I knock into what I need. And it was dangerous to know Joyce because if you did, you could end up on his pages. And, um, you know, there were people in Trieste that he, that he bumped into. One of them was the great Italian writer, Italo Svevo. And, um, 
he became a model, undoubtedly, for, for Leopold Bloom because he had the same Jewish Middle European background. And um, Joyce wanted to write something that was authentic and that had a, had a real kind of feel to it um, and not invent characters out of nothing. So especially when he was writing Ulysses. And, and so I think Trieste provided him with a myriad of, of these kind of influences. You know, the whole fact that both Leopold and Molly are Jewish, that they're attracted to each other because they are outsiders in Dublin. Um, I think that all relies on so much of what Joyce experienced in Trieste. Molly is from Gibraltar. Joyce never got near Gibraltar. The nearest he got to any Mediterranean seaport was Trieste itself. And when, when Molly Bloom in Ulysses, in her great monologue, recalls the Greeks and the Jews and the Arabs and the devil knows who else from all the ends of Europe, that's describing the marketplace in Gibraltar. But that could be the market in, in, in Trieste. It's certainly not the market in, in Dublin 1. Um, so this kind of international mixing that he saw there and experienced there, I think, left a, a mark on him. And I think that that can be traced through the pages of, of Ulysses, along with other things like opera. The, the work is full of references to opera. And Joyce haunted the opera house in Trieste. He was there on every available occasion, sucking up as much of the culture as he could get. And then I think pretty much he lived his life in order to serve his fiction. So, you know, everything he lived found it was funneled into, into what we find on the finished pages of his novels. I want to continue to probe, uh, you know, your experience in Trieste, but I'm just going to dial it back to Ireland again, just for one more go around. Uh, sure. Simply to say that we have, you and I have an interesting connection. <laughs> um, the irony is, is John and I, uh, John McCourt, that is, and I, uh, reconnected via Twitter without realizing that we actually knew each other in another life. Um, and it has actually strange connections with Joyce in some weird way, because John went to Belvedere, which is one of the preeminent Jesuit schools in Ireland, which, uh, whose most famous son is probably James Joyce, but that wasn't quite our connection. Our connection was a little odd. It had to do with something about throwing a metal ball around the place. Um, so you want to talk about that a little bit? <laughs> throwing a metal ball around? Well, or, yeah. or our yeah. mutual well, it's, it, it is a small world, is it not? Mm -hmm. um, I have to say the name, your name, it rang a bell and, um, and not a metal ball. And I, I <laughs> couldn't make the connection. But I said, I know this man from somewhere. And um, we were both lucky enough to be coached in, in, in Martin's case. You were uh, the shot putter and a discus thrower, correct? That's correct, yeah. Yeah. And I was a very poor hammer thrower. Um, and there were a couple of guys in my school who were, who were way better than I was. James Russell was one of them, who, who is out in Boston now, as far as I know. Um, and we used to go on training camps with Phil Conway, who was an Irish Olympian discus thrower um, and a wonderful coach. and. Um, um, he was the PE teacher in, in Belvedere. And, um, I don't think he cared too much that I never threw the hammer all that far, although he would give out to me at the time. Um, mm -hmm. he was a deep believer in the importance of sport and, and activity and keeping fellows out of trouble. And, um, one of the ways of doing that was to have them swinging a hammer, um, which I did. And I did with a lot of enthusiasm. Um, I used to throw the hammer from our, where you park the car outside our house out into the field. 
And um, I remember hitting the electricity wires and knocking out <laughs> half of St. Margaret's on one occasion, to the great embarrassment of my whole family. Um, because, I, yeah, I got quite wrapped up in that sport thing for, for a long time. And um, I was interested in all kinds of sports without being particularly good at any of them, from rugby to tennis to, to hammer throwing, indeed. Um, and I think Martin and I probably met down in where you went to school, Martin, down in Gormanston College. Franciscan College, if I'm not uh, mistaken, um, which was not a long way from where, where I actually lived, down North County Dublin, down towards um, Drogheda Way. Um, so, yeah, our paths would have, would have crossed there with, with various other sports people from, uh, from Phil Conway's group. Uh, you know, I just want to throw in, uh, I also threw the hammer oh, wow. in the discus in high school, and I was aspiring towards mediocrity, but I enjoyed it. Okay. Well, that makes two of us aspiring towards mediocrity in, this, in that particular field. Wow. Yeah. I'm a big believer in the uh, Irish two degrees of separation, so I'm delighted to uh, make this reconnection, even though our interests have probably moved on fairly dramatically over the last 40 years. <laughs> but um. I want to spin back, uh, as I said, I, I wanted to kind of go back to Trieste, and you kind of alluded to the fact um, that you fetched up in Trieste almost accidentally. So originally, I'm looking at your, you know, your CV, your educational CV. You go to Belvedere, where Joyce goes to school. You went to UCD, where Joyce also graduated from. And then you go on to Trieste. And so I almost had the impression that you were hot on the trail of James Joyce your whole life. But I think you're telling us something different. Is that correct? Yeah, well, sadly, I haven't written the great novel, um, which would have would have made a lot of sense. I mean, um, Yeats somewhere talks about um, poets, the bundle of accident and incoherence behind a life. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of accident in, in the way I live my life. I, I ended up in Trieste because I met a woman from Trieste and, um, I took a very intuitive decision to go there and I ended up getting married and having kids and one thing and another and living, you know, making a life there. Um, and there, as I say, I discovered Joyce again, and I particularly discovered the Joyce of Ulysses because I hadn't read Ulysses before I went there. Um, I'd attempted to read it in college and failed, like most people fail the first time around. And no shame in that, by the way. Um, <clears throat> I think it's almost necessary. And um, yeah, when I was there, it became, he became the, the, the topic of, of um, a PhD. I decided I wanted to do a PhD and I had various ideas. And Gus Martin from um, UCD said, well, the best idea is to, to do the work that only you can do because only you are in Trieste and have access to all the sources and all the archives. And indeed, some of the people who actually still knew Joyce, and I was lucky enough to get the last, get interviews with the last couple of people who had actually sat with Joyce or studied with Joyce. And so he put me onto something there. He encouraged me in, in what I, in the direction I thought, I thought I wanted to go. And, um, I, I, again, a little bit like Joyce, I, I divided my time between teaching English and trying to write a PhD and also trying to look after two small children. So the early, the early years, the early McCourt years in Trieste were not that simple either. Um, but um, uh, then I eventually um, moved out of Trieste and, and got a job in Rome. And um, he also lived in Rome, but for six miserable months, he didn't like Rome at all. He said it was like an old cemetery and the, the Romans just showed off the graves of their grandmothers to travelers. He, 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 they were vulgar and nasty. He really didn't like them. Um, um, 
I have a difficult relationship with Rome too, but not quite to that extent. And I have managed to live there now for the best part of 10 years. Um, but I'm between there and yet another part of Italy. So uh, Macerata, the Marche. So I suppose I've been lucky. My, my path has taken me down into deeper into Italy because many in Italy would not consider Trieste Italy at all. They would consider it Middle Europe. They would consider it very Austrian, very much connected to the the kind of middle European Slav world. It's, it is that in-between place, whereas now I'm, I'm experiencing a different kind of Italy and um, I'm off the Joyce Trail, if you like, which is healthy. Well, let's stay off the Joyce Trail for a minute. You know, my, my wife is from Italy. Uh, I go there frequently, going there in a few days. Tell me a little bit about, you know, the, the experience of an Irishman in uh, Italy, how the Irish are perceived by the Italians, things that you love about Italy that you wish were in Ireland and vice versa. Uh, tell us about your life in Italy. Well, there's a lot of questions there, John. Um, <laughs> my life in Italy is, is, is very good. I mean, it was very tough to break into the mainstream system in Italy. It's not a country that absorbs people from abroad terribly well or is terribly good at recognizing merit. Okay. In, in other countries, I think if you do a good job, you'll get rewarded for it quite quickly. It took me till I was about 40 to get actually get properly into the university system. And it was deeply frustrating. Um, but eventually I did. And I believe passionately that it's necessary um, for Italy to be more open towards people from other cultures. It can only enrich um, um, in the way Ireland has learned that lesson in the last several decades. I mean, the amount that people from outside of Ireland have brought to the Irish, to Irish culture, Irish social life, Irish economy is just extraordinary. And Italy desperately needs that. Um, the things I love in Italy are the, the obvious ones, um, the food, the wine, um, the actual places. I mean, if Italy only realized how wonderful it is, or it was, um, you know, if it could become, you know, more than the sum of its parts, it's a terribly divided country even today. And, um, that's, that's, that's a pity. Um, a lot of things need to be, need to be looked at. Um, so. I think the Irish in Italy, insofar as they're perceived at all, um, they tend to be perceived as British. Um, I constantly am referred to as being Britannico and being Anglo-Sassone and having an Anglo-Saxon sense of humor, whatever that is. Um, it's non-existent. So um, I find that strange, um, but we're a very small country, Ireland, you know, um, and we don't have a huge tradition of people in Italy from Ireland. I think the Irish population in the country is probably under 10,000 and they tend to be hidden around the country um, in various places. I mean, I have found a few around Macerata, for example, who run businesses and, and um, are, are very much at home. They made kind of lifestyle choices to live in a place like the market where the quality of life and the, and the, and the, and the climate and the food and the wine and all of that are, are extremely, are extremely pleasant. Um, there'd be some sense in Italy of Patrick's Day, which, which is an occasion to go out for a pint, um, even in Italy, um, and some sense of, of Ireland as a country of poets and writers. Um, that tradition would certainly be recognized. Um, but you, you, there's a lot of work to be done to kind of put the Irish, if you like, on, on the map here in Italy. I mean, there are Irish people who've done very well in this country, but, um, you know, they're, they're, you, you need to look pretty hard in order to, in order to find them. There's nothing comparable to, 
you know, the Irish American group. Or I was, I spent two years ago, I spent a term up in Montreal and, and got to know a lot of the Irish community in that city through Concordia University. Um, we don't have really anything like that. Um, we're, we're much smaller. And, um, you know, there's a lot of work that could be done there, I think. And the embassy, as, as Irish embassies tend to do around the world, they do a great job in promoting Irish culture and indeed in, in, in supporting Irish citizens who, who find themselves in different countries. They, they do what they can, but it's a small operation compared to, compared to what's happening in, in the States or Canada or even in, in a country like France. Are, are the are the uh, Italians traveling to Ireland and coming back with? Yeah, you know, there's. there's be a, I've mentioned this many times, and Martin's heard the story. But I took my wife to Italy for the first time, to Ireland for the first time a couple of years ago. And she's like, okay, you know, sort of from the food aspect, you know, okay, sounds good. She loved it. The food, the food in Ireland was great. Every meal we had was excellent. Maybe not the same as an Italian. Food. But anyway, I just wonder if there's any kind there's of There's a huge traffic of, of Irish people, of Italians to Ireland. Um, an awful lot of people go there on Erasmus programs to study. Uh, a huge number of my students go there. And now that Britain has opted out of uh, Europe and indeed out of the overall Erasmus scheme, uh, more and more want to go to Ireland. So there's, there's a big, um, there's a lot of traffic in, the, in that direction. Um, less traffic from Ireland to Italy. It's partly a language thing. I mean, the Italians want to speak English and uh, Italian is seen as a minority language, which it is in, in Ireland. Um, but, you know, an Erasmus experience is about so much more than, than the language. So um, I, I would warmly encourage people to, to visit this country and to take time in this country, um, which is the cultural heart of Europe, if you like. It's, it, it's extraordinary. There, every city has something, no matter how small it is, that's worth visiting, be it the Duomo or the local museum or, or whatever. Just the, 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 these are museum-like cities, and um, the, the, the Macerata is one of these. You know, the university that I teach in has been there since 1290. It's the ninth oldest university in the world, and it should be a jewel in the crown, and it's a kind of a almost forgotten small university town. Um, and I just see potential. Uh, I, I, I see, I imagine what they would do with a town like that if they had it in, in County Offaly or in, or, or somewhere in Ireland, because it's, it's a gem. And, um, um, you know, but the problem in Italy is they've so many of these towns, uh, it's very hard to save them all. We're, we're currently trying to recover from an earthquake, which we had in 2016. And, um, it's, it just takes so long to repair and rebuild, um, and, um, you know, we got knocked backwards, of course, like everyone else then by COVID. So Italy was particularly hit in that sense as well. Anyway, I'm rambling on. Sorry. No, no, no. Good. It's, just, it's an area that I'm always thinking about and comparing and contrasting when I go over there. I'm going to switch the focus now to uh, your latest book, which I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Consuming Joys. Um, it's published, as I mentioned, by Bloomsbury. Why does the world need another book on Joyce. How many books are there about Joyce? Well, the short answer is that there are too many books on Joyce. And <laughs> I say that as the president of the International James Joyce Foundation. Um, oh, I should have mentioned that at the top of the uh, No, no, you don't need to mention you know? that. You mentioned more than enough. But um, <laughs> there are too many books about Joyce, and not all of them are terribly illuminating. Let's be very honest. Um, and there was, you know, a, almost a professional Joyce industry, particularly in the 60s, 70s and 80s, and particularly in the United States. And a lot of careers were made out of books on James Joyce. Um, in those years, in those decades, very little was written about Joyce by, by, by Irish people. In fact, 
first book in, by an Irish academic in an Irish university on James Joyce is 1996. Now, that's kind of an incredible thing to think about. Um, so I think the Irish um, are really only discovering Joyce in the last 20 to 30 years in any way that's not hostile, with the exception of, you know, occasional readers and enthusiasts um, who, who, of course, have long admired his work. So I think that um, we still are learning to read James Joyce um, and that there is still space for more books, believe it or not. Um, and there are space for books that take a new angle, if you like, um, and without wanting to blow my own trumpet, but I will blow it for a minute. Um, nobody talked about the, the influence of Trieste on Joyce's writing until I went to Trieste, and that was a new angle. I hoped that that would provoke more interest in that subject, and it provoked a little, but not as much as you want, one would hope. Uh, and then Consuming Joyce, I think, also took a new angle in that it tried to examine how Ireland read Joyce over a century or didn't read Joyce over a century. And that, to me, is an interesting story, which goes beyond um, what might interest someone who's paid to read books about Joyce. At least that was my hope, because a lot of the books I read, I can see that they're, they're written for 15 people who are paid to read them. Uh, and review them, maybe not paid to review them, but um, and so that very specialist kind of publishing, um, you know, is clearly not going to interest a general reader. But I, I think Joyce and his writings and their reception in Ireland tells us a lot. For example, about how Ireland changed over over the past century, we can learn a lot both about him and about about the Irish by looking at the country through his eyes and through the kind of um, the way in which he was read by uh, by Irish people or not read by Irish people. So, yeah, I think you also, with a writer of the complexity of Joyce, you need to, in a sense, re-explain him to every new generation. And I think he says new things to new generations. I mean, that's why we're still reading Dante and Shakespeare after all these years, because they, 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 their works are so rich and, and deep that we continue to find things that are relevant to us today. Right. And, you know, so who talk, talked about the fact, who realized, who remembered that when Joyce was publishing Ulysses and the hundred years ago, um, Europe was in, in a state not terribly different from the state it's in today. It was in a state of war and it was getting over the Spanish flu. And here we are a hundred years later dealing with COVID and again with war. And what does Joyce do in the middle of all of that? He writes a book which celebrates ordinary life and the value of the everyday. Now, that may seem like the most banal message ever, but suddenly today, to me, it seems like an incredibly important aspect of Joyce's book to underline, the importance of what we take for granted, the everyday, decency, justice, and getting on with people around you, which Leopold Plume tries to do. So I realize I'm saying something that's not terribly original, and yet it needs to be said again. Um, and... Um, other people will read him in terms of climate crisis, and they'll talk about how he talks about these issues in a way. He didn't know he was talking about climate crisis in our terms, and yet there's stuff in his books which makes us think about these kind of issues. Um, so um, Joyce, because he, inter he, he interacts also so much with history, Irish history, European history, world history, um, makes, us, makes us kind of do the same. And you know, by reflecting on history, we can also learn to reflect on, on what we're doing today. So I, I see the necessity of books that don't make Joyce harder than he already is, but books that help us think with Joyce 
and in a way laugh with Joyce because Joyce's books, especially Ulysses, can make us do both of those things. And, and um, that's a pretty good start. Yeah, my question was, I suppose, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek provocative. Um, I love this book um, because, and it actually fits in with the book that, that I was reading prior to this, which was uh, Fintan O'Toole's We Don't Know Ourselves. Uh, that book follows kind of Ireland over the course of Fintan O'Toole's life starting in 1958. And the first half of your book uh, leads into that period. And it's a really interesting way on one level, it's not all about what the book's about, uh, to examine Irish history uh, because it reflects the reaction to Joyce's work from Ireland really kind of communicates, speaks to me about the nature of the early stages of the state. You know, I think about, um, you know, the outrage tone of Irish criticism to Joyce in the 20s and 30s. And um, what crops up a lot in your book are references to the Catholic Bulletin. Mm -hmm. And um, routinely they refer to Joyce as obscene, that obscene and filthy writer. And it's such a dramatic contrast to modern day Ireland, which is probably, you know, it's probably the most liberal country in Western Europe now. Uh, and, and that's changed in our lifetimes, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, Fintan O'Toole, when he's writing his book, kind of refers to that as well. Um, so the 20s and 30s, my, my dad was born in 1925. He, he grew up in the 1930s. And so this kind of reveals this almost theocratic Ireland of that time when the country's newly independent. Was that what you had in mind or, you know, was that something that you really wanted to convey in the book as this kind of really closed place, uh, overbearing, we are going to be more Catholic than anybody else? Was, mm -hmm. was that what your thinking was going after? Yeah, that's pretty much where my thinking was going. And I mean, that was in a sense guided by Joyce himself, who who said Ireland needed to free itself twice. It was twice co colonized, if you like. It needed to free itself of the British and it needed to free itself of the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, he had doubts about the ability to free ourselves from the British, but he, he genuinely thought we would never liberate ourselves uh, from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, he certainly couldn't have imagined the Ireland that, that we have today, where the Catholic Church has fallen into total disgrace and almost irrelevance within uh, the discourse of the country, to a point that's possibly like throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I mean, we've, we've got rid of it all. And um, I think there, there probably there'll be a balance eventually achieved. But right now, I, I don't envy anyone who has to try and operate as a Catholic priest in Ireland. And um, I, I meet some of them in Rome, and I can see how hard, decent good people um, who don't buy into any of that kind of, you know, um, culture that we are talking about in the 1920s and 30s, who, which saw someone like Joyce merely because he was critical as a kind of an antichrist um, and a country which expected absolute subservience and obedience from its people. Um, and that the first person to be obeyed was the local was the local parish priest, and that was certainly the the Ireland that my parents, like like yours, Martin, were were, were born into. Um, my father's also nineteen twenty five. Um, my mother a couple of years later. Um, a country where you know, in the local parish church in County Meath, where my mother was from, 
the the congregation was rearranged on on around uh, New Year every year based on the num the amount of money that each member of the congregation had given to the to the priest based on their financial fidelity, if you like, to the church. And if you hadn't given quite as much, you were moved back a couple of benches. Um, so, you know, just an appalling kind of control, which had nothing whatsoever to do with faith at all. And I think that lingered in people, that sense of um, obligation. I can remember my father dragging us all to mass. And, um, you know, I can remember my uncle coming back from the States. He, he lived his life in Boston and he was dragged to mass as well. And um, when he came back occasionally for his holiday and, and on the way back from mass, turning to my father and saying, so what did you think of the sermon, Jimmy? Uh, <laughs> he'd gone to mass, but he hadn't heard it. He'd gone because it was a box you had to tick and you had to be at mass, seen at mass and to toe the line. My father would have had a visceral reaction against James Joyce. He would never have read a word of him. And um, in later life, he found it kind of amusing that I spent my time studying James Joyce. He would throw his eyes to heaven and go, oh, Jesus, your man. <laughs> and um, he would have considered him one of the many mad writers that Ireland had produced, along with people like Patrick Kavanagh or, or Flann O'Brien, uh, characters, you know, that you'd see in a pub. Um, so I think the, the, the Ireland that um, read Joyce in the, those early decades was profoundly anti-intellectual. Um, and profoundly suspicious of anyone or anyone's writing that might rock the status quo. And the status quo meant that the church was in charge and in the secondary position was the, were the organs of the state. I, I think there's no question who, who, who had the stronger kind of authority. Um, it was church before state. And um, we saw that then in the Constitution in 1937 when that even became more underlined. So Joyce just was unbearable to that way of looking at the world um, because he, 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 he was suspicious in any case of all forms of authority. That's just the way he was. And um, he didn't suggest an alternative, but he could certainly point out to us the limits in the various forms of authority that existed, um, and particularly in the blind following of any form of authority, in the, in the, lack, of, in the lack of questioning. And so the church which was obsessed in any case in Ireland with issues of sexuality, as we know, to a horrible extent, we know that today, um, they focused on Joyce being some kind of a perverted lunatic, uh, an obscene writer, a writer of dirty books. Well, anyone who reads Ulysses looking for the dirty bits is going to come away very disappointed. <laughs> um, so, but they were quite happy to, you know, to cast judgment without ever actually taking the trouble to give him a read. You know, at the beginning of the episode, Martin had you, uh, you know, bring bring James Joyce back to life and invite him over for a bottle of white wine and some dinner. Uh, what would Joyce have thought of the uh, Joyce industry, which you mentioned a couple of moments ago? And I, from things I've read, I, I know you have sort of mixed feelings about the Joyce industry. I think um, Joyce will be delighted that we're all here talking about him. I don't think he'd have any problem with that at all. He was always trying to promote his own work through, and, and it wasn't easy. He was stuck out in Trieste, which, yes, was an interesting melting pot, but it wasn't exactly the center of the world when it came to publishing in the English language. Um, and then he found himself having to publish in Paris. So it was very hard for Joyce to get himself on the literary map. So any opportunity for attention was good. And he was very good at playing critics off one another. 
So he had the one hand would have a French critic, Valérie Larbold, describing him as a European writer, but not connected to Ireland. And then he'd have an Irish writer responding to that, like Ernest Boyd, who lived in New York, saying, no, no, you can't understand Joyce unless you understand Ireland. Both these things are correct, by the way. Um, and Joyce encouraged both lines of debate, because in the end, this was encouraging people to talk about him. Um, but, you know, one of the things he reportedly said um, when he read the reviews of his book was he complained, does nobody realize that Ulysses is a funny book? And Nora used to describe him writing in his room at night and laughing his head off as he wrote. Um, you know, um, you're supposed to also, it's supposed to be a funny book as well as everything else. So I think he would be amused at the self-importance of some of the critics who um, who read his books in ways that don't make them more accessible. Um, I'd be worried about that. Uh, at the same time, he would equally be amused and I think somewhat pleased at the way Bloomsday is celebrated around the world. It's become a kind of an alternative uh, national day. Um, so you said a dressed up alternative to St. Patrick's Day. A dressed up alternative to Patrick's Day. Exactly. Yeah, I th- he would have got a kick out of that. And um, there would have been some kind of sweet revenge, I suppose, in that forum as well. And seeing that, um, you know, um, possibly Irish people know more about James Joyce today than they do about St. Patrick, um, possibly because it's easier to get information that's reliable about James Joyce today. Um, so he would have enjoyed being this secular saint. At the same time, I think he wouldn't want his work to be trivialized. And that's that's always the danger, you know, that you turn him into this literary leprechaun um, whose works lose their punch. And Joyce's works are extremely critical, not only of the Ireland of that time, but they're also means to criticize the Ireland of today. So I think he would worry about becoming the orthodox and the, the, the you know, yeah, the orthodox. He'd have, he's moved into the center, whereas I think Joyce wants always to be you know, um, a writer who challenges readers and who challenges the status quo, which I think he can still do today, despite being, you know, turned into statues here and there and everywhere and into beer mats and having pubs named after mm-hmm. him and ships and airport lounges. I mean, I don't think he would like the um, the commercialization of his name and of his books, which are which is so far disconnected um, from any reading of his work. He's just he's just a useful hang your hat name. Yeah, it strikes me that James Joyce wouldn't be too thrilled about appearing on a tea towel. Um, <laughs> but, no. you know, you, you, I agree. You know, I am now on a, another attempt to actually uh, read Ulysses. Uh, I'm, I'm pleased to report I actually completed reading Telemachus, and I did find myself laughing reading it. Um, specifically, you know, the glee of the character Buck Mulligan, uh, who, of course, is modeled on uh, Oliver Sinjin Gogarty, um, who it turns out, uh, and you talk about this in your book, uh, really having a deep distaste for Joyce and the portrayal of him as Buck Mulligan. Um, you talk a little bit about that. It's kind of it's surprising. Yeah, well, I mean... I can see why um, Gogarty was less than pleased at how he was represented in Joyce's pages. It's not exactly a glowing portrait. He's seen as, you know, a performer rather than a believer in in, in what he says, um, who's buttering up uh, Haynes, the Englishman, because he has a few bob and might be willing to, to pay him for his thoughts. So he's, you know, he's a kind of a court jester figure. 
And um, he offered Joyce, albeit briefly, some, you know, hospitality in the Gogarty Tower. Of course, nobody calls it the Gogarty Tower. It's the Joyce Tower out in Sandy Cove. Um, and he believed um, his, his, he believed Joyce lost his way, that the, the early writer of more comprehensible and straightforward books had lost his way, particularly in the second half of Ulysses. And this was a belief that many Irish friends, enemies, supporters, and not supporters of Joyce had. Uh, Joyce became too difficult as far as they were concerned. And um, yeah, I mean, Mulligan, Mulligan, Gogarty almost made a living out of writing negative articles about Joyce. And um, many of them he published in the United States, uh, talking about uh, Joyce as, you know, this insane um, factory of puns um, uh, who who became obsessed, and this was something that Frank O'Connor, the short story writer, also wrote, obsessed with style over substance, obsessed with language over um, the reality that it was trying to convey. And I mean, they may not have been entirely wrong. I mean, um, <clears throat> because Joyce's style, of course, is so complex and so difficult and so constantly changing that it provides that it provides a huge challenge to to any reader. Let's be honest; it's not a simple a simple read. What did Joyce need to make it all so difficult, or did he need to keep changing the style of Ulysses with every passing episode? He clearly felt he did. I don't think he did it just to make his works more complicated than they needed to be. It it, it has the style it needs to have, I would argue. Um, but I can see why early readers, in particular, who didn't have any guides or any help, uh, could struggle could struggle with that. And I would also argue that the best way through the stylistic difficulties uh, is to read the book aloud um, and listen to it. And it's it performs so well. And sometimes you find yourself falling into the jokes because you actually hear your, what, you, what you're saying. So hearing it in an Irish accent can be such a huge help um, towards, towards reading it. And in fact, many of the ways people read it is, is in, in groups at this point where you, where you do go through it line by line, page by page. I'm con- currently leading a group for the uh, the embassy down in Rome uh, online, and um, you know it does come alive when you when you when you speak it loud, aloud. It's it's certainly a great way to to get into the book. Uh, Martin and I were talking about it. I've I've made two stabs at it. I'll make my third. Uh, and I was just wondering, you know, would an audio book version really just to hear the language playing out would that would that be sort of a helpful? There's a version? wonderful version recorded by RTE by the RTE players. And it was broadcast um, as a continuous broadcast. It took, mm. I think, 30 hours. Um, and that's available. That's available online now, as far as I know. They broadcast it again during COVID um, around around June 16, maybe in 2020. Uh, and that's a fantastic resource. Um, and, you know, you could listen to that driving along in your car. Um uh, so I would I would warmly recommend that in particular uh, as a great way to actually hear Joyce. And of course, you're not going to get every reference. You don't need to get every reference. In fact, you know, rushing off to look up another reference book to get another reference in a way kills it. Some sometimes, yeah, it's good. It's no harm to do that. But I wouldn't get wound up about understanding every line. You need to defer understanding sometimes and just just keep listening. And um, I do think it can sweep you along. And if necessary, I don't know how far in you got, John, but don't be afraid to skip the first three chapters because Stephen Dedalus bores the pants off most people. He's arrogant and he's overly intellectual and he's a bit of a pain in the, in the rear end. 
uh, Leopold Bloom is so much more human and and likable in a sense that um, the advice to skip the first three and begin with Leopold, I think is good advice. And you can always go back if the book grips you and then recu- recoup the first three chapters. Remember, Joyce pointedly starts Ulysses twice. Uh, chapter one and chapter four begin at exactly the same time. And um, I think it's it's no harm to look at it also as 18 separate episodes, almost like 18 separate, separate short stories featuring more or less the same characters, each of one, which is almost each of one, each of which is almost standalone. Standalone in terms of its style and in terms of its beginning and middle and end, if you like. So, you know, this idea that I have to steam through Ulysses at all costs from beginning to end is is not necessarily helpful. It's a bit like sitting down to read the Bible from beginning to end. Um, you're not going to make it. You're going to get lost somewhere in the Old Testament for sure. And um, you're going to hit that marathon wall. So um, I'm I'm very much in favor of, of little and often. And um, if you don't like a bit, just jump over it. Yeah, um, you're just picking up on that thread. Uh, Dan Mulhall, who we had on the podcast towards the end of our, our last season, um, kind of made the same suggestion that each of these episodes or chapters within Ulysses can be read as a standalone and that there's no harm skipping if you're finding really heavy going in one. There's no harm to skip forward and go to the next one. Um I started reading Cyclops right in the middle of the book because, you know, he talked a lot about that. And he'd written an article in the Washington Post referring to Bloom as a nationalist, um, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting. Um, and Joyce, uh, there's arguments about Joyce. Well, what exactly was Joyce? Was he apolitical? Was he an Irish nationalist? Was he some urbane cosmopolitan? Uh, and, and so there's arguments going back and forth between you know the Irish, uh, I think you refer to it in your book, as reclaiming Joyce for Irish nationalism, uh, as opposed to, uh, let's say, the continental or American view where Joyce is not really political at all. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, that's a hugely interesting debate, I think, Martin. Uh, Joyce was initially cast very much as a continental, apolitical modernist who was above and beyond mere politics and um, who had distanced himself from Ireland so as to distance himself from Irish politics. Um, and many modernist writers were, were seen in, in or cast in this way. Um, but many of them, of course, were, were deeply political and sometimes uncomfortably political. Look at Yeats or Ezra Pound. Their politics is not very pretty. Um, Joyce was very different to either of those figures. Um, I, again, think that Joyce was... Um, was many of the descriptions you've just given at the same time. He was certainly cosmopolitan. He absorbed um, influences from many different cultures and represented them. He liked the Austro-Hungarian Empire because he called it a ramshackle affair, um, which was able to kind of contain lots of difference in some way. He probably idealized it. And of course, when that world came to an end, we went into uh, you know decades of war. As, as Europe ripped itself apart. So he looked back on that with great, with great fondness. At the same time, he was an Irishman who believed and hoped in Irish freedom and um, in, in all of that. He was never going to be one of a gang, however, and certainly he was never going to be one of Yeats's gang. And so um, for a long time, we, we, we found it difficult to understand his connection with or role in the Irish revival. But it, and he was seen as something outside of the Irish revival. 
However, today we see him as intrinsic to the Irish revival. Both Yeats and Joyce were trying in their writing to remodel Ireland and to change our way of seeing ourselves, I think. I think they're, they were both at very similar things. Joyce abandoned poetry because he was never going to compete with Yeats. Yeats had that cornered. Um, and and he, he set off in another direction. Joyce was never going to be the, the kind of public man that Yeats, that Yeats was so sex successfully, you know, the senator and all of that. That was never for Joyce. Um, but he was deeply embedded in Irish politics, um, starting out as a family that were, were so, so devastated by the fall of Charles Stuart Parnell. And then, of course, he became so interested in Arthur Griffith and in Griffith's ideas for Ireland. Um, and I see, I see him there. Um, bearing, you know, a lot of, um, there's a lot of politics in his early writings. He, he writes nine articles in Trieste as a very young, newly arrived there about Irish politics, trying to explain it very much in the, in the Arthur Griffith key um, of uh, almost as if he was taking on this ambassadorial role. Then, of course, he moves on and does other things. But I think he, he cared deeply about Ireland. He, he, he feared Ireland didn't care deeply enough about him. And he resented it for that. But um, I think ultimately, um, I'm not sure I call him a nationalist, but um, he certainly had a great love of his patria, of his country in that sense. And I think served it in a way that's that's unique. And it came at a great cost, if you like, to himself. I mean, I think he would love to have gone back to Ireland, uh, not to live, but to visit. But he was worried that that would kind of break the spell because he was writing about an Ireland in a particular moment in the past and um, that that would be shattered and that it would become more difficult to write to write about it. But I mean, he, anyone who came to see him in Paris and there was, there was a, there was, it was almost like a pilgrimage in the last 10 years of, of young aspiring Irish writers who went out to see him. I mean, he talked about bars and coffee shops in Dublin, about streets and what was at number six now on such and such a street. He, his mental absorption uh, in, in the country uh, was there really until, until the end. Um, and yeah, he has a lot more in common with the kind of broader Irish nationalist movement of, which began with the revival and I suppose finished with, with, um, the revolution in 1916. He's very much part of that generation. There's no question about that. Not that he wasn't critical of its limits, but he was very much part of it. And I think what he saw in it was very much that it was a reaction against Britain instead of a proposal as to the Ireland that we wanted to see happening in the future. And I think he tried to give voice to what kind of an Ireland could actually take shape. And he tried to do that in Ulysses. John, it's, it's really a pleasure to have this uh, very, very global Irish conversation with you in Trieste to uh, get the perspective uh, of, a, of a scholar of Joyce, but who can put the, the themes and the topics in a very accessible uh, language for for any, any any of our listeners so we much appreciate it we'd like to give you back a little bit of your afternoon in trieste uh <laughs> so with thanks for joining us on irish stew uh can we uh, bring in our uh, our sub co-host seamus plug who would like to offer you a chance to let us know what's going on and what we should know about what you're doing sure i'm delighted to shamelessly plug <laughs> um so well, I've just published a book called Consuming Joyce, which, as you've said, is uh, a history of how Joyce was read and not read in Ireland, and in a way it becomes a history of Ireland itself, and that's available from uh, Bloomsbury. And the other thing I suppose I'd mention, in, um, in mid-June, we go to Dublin 
for the International James Joyce Symposium, um, the um, annual biannual event, which first took place in Dublin in 1967 and was the subject of much hilarity in the Dublin newspapers. They they talked about the Joyce posers, the symposers being at it again. Um, <laughs> and that'll be a great uh, time to celebrate Joyce in his own city, um, in, in Trinity and at UCD. And then we return out to Trieste for the end of the month for our 24th annual Trieste James Joyce Summer School, which is a very accessible event, which in, which attracts people of all generations, many of whom are going to read Joyce for the first time. And they choose to do it in his second city um, of Trieste, which is beautiful around that time of the year. And um, it's it's more relaxed than the symposium. It's talks in the morning and seminars in the afternoon. And then the uh, rich cultural and social life, let's call it that, in the evening. But a very pleasant way to spend a week in Trieste, in Joyce's second city. I'm sold. I want to be there. I want to try that Trieste coffee. Absolutely. Well, do join us. If you're, if you're nearby in Pavia, it's only down the road. With that, I'd like to thank John McCourt for a very enjoyable conversation. It's been a real pleasure um, for enlightening and elucidating us in an ineluctable way, I suppose. Um, I had to throw that one in, John. You know, look that one up <laughs> in the dictionary. And uh, hope to have this opportunity again. We want to wish you a happy Bloomsday. And uh, just thank you on behalf of both me, John, and our listeners. Mille grazie, dottore. Thank you to both of you. It's, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your hospitality and your great questions. That was a great conversation with John McCourt. And between that conversation and the conversation that we had with Dan Mulhall at the end of season three, I feel like I've got a much firmer grasp on Joyce and Ulysses. And I'm now really well equipped to uh, start tackling the text itself. But one of the things that really stood out to me in the conversation was Joyce's nationalist, which is actually a point that Dan Mulhall was making. And I think John McCourt was basically telling us Joyce can be viewed as kind of this cosmopolitan European figure, but he also must be viewed as an Irishman. And an Irishman with a particular view of how Ireland should be. Ireland should be free of colonial British rule, but it also needs to be freed from the overbearing rule of the Catholic Church. I think Joyce maybe would have returned to Ireland if both those two impediments to the quality of life were removed. Now, some people may not have considered those to be impediments, but Joyce certainly did. One thing that's looking at uh, John's career, it was interesting to see how a scholar's viewpoint can evolve. So he's been living with Joyce for 20 years. And about 10 years ago, he he's, he made a comment of um, how he's grown to like the man less and less while he's grown to admire the writer more. But, you know, his view tempered a little bit. He, he mentioned in our episode 
about that he saw Joyce as an extremely flawed human being who put most of his genius and humanity into his writing. Uh, he kind of has moved on a bit from his viewpoint 10 years ago. I found that interesting. And let's uh, consider the scholarship that he's done in the city of Trieste, a very unusual city. Is it Italian? Is it Slavic? Is it Austrian? It's out there on the edge of empire. And he made a very convincing argument that Trieste was a major influence on Joyce and on the writing of Ulysses. Yeah, I think what he saw, or what John has come to realize, is that Trieste, in some respects, represented a potential model for Dublin, because Ulysses is not simply about the record of one day in Dublin on the 16th of June in 1904. It is, to some degree, a portrayal of an aspirational city, a city that is more tolerant. It is a novel where a Irishman, but of Hungarian Jewish extraction, is the central character, married to a woman who was born in Gibraltar. And so cosmopolitanism, tolerance, all these things were what Joyce ultimately saw as necessary for a great city. And I think he encountered those in Trieste and maybe somewhat wistfully hoped to transplant those notions into his native Dublin. I really want to get to Trieste, not only because of uh, Joyce, but they supposedly have the best coffee in Italy. So That's a good reason to go. Hey, we'd like to close this episode with the way we closed the episode with uh, Dan Mulhall and the way uh, James Joyce closed Ulysses with Molly's soliloquy. And we are extremely fortunate to have a segment of that final chapter of Ulysses performed for Irish Stew and for you by the superb Aideen Maloney. Once in the dear dead days beyond recall Here are the world, the mispick oh, I hate that, the mispickam Comes love's sweet song The last concert I sang at, when was it? It's over a year ago. St. Teresa's Hall, Clarendon Street. Little chits of missies they have now singing. Kathleen Kearney and her like. On account of father being in the British Army. When I had the map of it all. And Poldy, not Irish enough for them. I'll let that out full when I get in front of the footlights again. Kathleen Kearney and her lot of squealers. Miss this, miss that, miss the other. Lot of sparrow farts skitting around talking about politics they know as much about as my backside. Anything in the world to make themselves some way interesting. Irish homemade beauties. Soldier's daughter am I. Aye. And who's a you? Bootmakers and publicans. <laughs> They'd die down dead off their feet if ever they had a chance to walk down the Alameda on an officer's arm. My eyes flash passion. I've my mother's eyes and figure anyhow. They don't know how to sing a song like that. 
Let them go and get a husband first that's fit to be looked at and a daughter like mine. Or see if they can excite a swell with money like Boylan, who can pick and choose whoever he wants to do it four or five times, locked in each other's arms, or the voice either. I could have been on the stage, only I married him. Comes love's old. I'll change that lace on my black dress to show off my bubs. And yes, by God, I'll get that big fan mended. Make them burst with envy. Sweet. Train far away. E- One more. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty, with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahalo Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Hold up. 